Are you dreaming of becoming a doctor at an Ivy League medical school, one of the best in the country, indeed the world? Do you want to learn how to ace the admissions process at Dartmouth Geisel School of Medicine? Tune into this episode of Admission Straight Talk, where I interview Dr. Roshini Pinto-Powell, the Associate Dean for Admissions at Geisel, and get her insider tips on what makes a successful applicant. Welcome to the 530th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for joining me today. Are you ready to apply to your dream medical schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Except it's Med School Admissions Quiz can give you a quick reality check. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 530th episode of Admissions Trade Talk. Thanks for joining me today. Are you ready to apply to your dream medical schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Acceptance Med School Admissions Quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash medquiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your qualifications and your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, take the quiz at accepted.com slash medquiz to obtain your free assessment. Our guest today is Dr. Roshni Pinto-Powell. Dr. Pinto-Powell grew up and earned her bachelor's degree in chemistry in India. She earned her MD at the Ross School of Medicine. She did two fellowships in infectious disease and returned with her husband to Dartmouth, where she actually focused on general internal medicine. She also found that she loved teaching and today is a professor of medicine and a professor of medical education, as well as co-director of On Doctoring at Dartmouth Geisel, Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, and most importantly for our conversation today, Associate Dean of Admissions at Geisel. Dr. Pinto-Powell, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Thank you. Glad to have you. Can you give us an overview of the MD program at Geisel, focusing on its more distinctive elements? I think one of the things I'd start off uh, by saying is that um, Geisel is a small school, relatively. We have 92 students. 90 MD students, two MD PhD students. And this is the largest we've ever been. We were a much smaller school, 65 students, until fairly recently, about a decade and a half to two decades ago, and then have grown to 92. And I mention that because I think that's one of its distinctive elements. It's small enough that in in, in some ways, I would say we're the cheers of school, you know, where everybody knows your name and everybody's glad you came. And if you ask any of our students or staff or administrators, uh, what is their favorite thing? They will say the sense of community, the sense of feeling like people know you. Our students don't graduate without personally knowing more than 10, 15 faculty, you know, have been to their homes, watch their dogs or <laughs> animals and things like that. And I think that makes it just a wonderful place to learn to be a doctor. Sounds like a very close-knit community. I believe so. Yeah. 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 Now, on the website, when I was preparing for the call, it mentioned several times that the medical schools has a real determination to graduate what called the complete physician. What does that mean, the complete physician? And does it tie into the community that you were just talking about? 
It does. It absolutely does. Um, and I'm really glad you asked that question because that is our tagline. And my silly joke usually is, well, I don't know any medical school in this country or any other that's trying to graduate the incomplete physician. That's what I was thinking. But <laughs> what, what we mean at Geisel when we talk about the complete physician is somebody who's totally grounded in the foundational science. And I think that first point is really relevant and important today. I think we all know that uh, most medical schools have a pass-fail preclinical curriculum to stimulate a collegiality and uh, openness to learning and being unafraid to be wrong. But now, USMLE 1, step one, is pass-fail. And I feel I worry a little bit about the sense of just having to pass, maybe not focusing, students not focusing on the foundational science as it's very core, something that is very integral to the second part of being a complete physician. And that is being a caring physician, right? Who really knows how to connect with patients, to take care of patients. But you can't do that effectively. You can't be the most empathic, wonderful physician and not know your stuff. Right. One and two. Or it doesn't matter. You can be empathic. It doesn't matter. Exactly. I wouldn't say that you were a complete or a really good physician, frankly. So those two are foundational to me, found really grounded in the sciences, really outstanding clinician. But then the third and fourth thing I think are very important at Geisel. Geisel's been the home of Dartmouth Atlas. I think many people will know about that. And so I think the one thing we really want our students to go away with is somebody who understands the science of healthcare delivery. And in, in 2023, I would really add somebody who understands implementation science, right? And so I think about implementation science really as the adoption and integration of evidence-based healthcare in order to take great care of a population. Like you have to really do this well. Yeah, because there are so many studies that show there's so many new things. Science is developing at this incredible speed. And the time it takes from knowledge, which is really effective, evidence-based, to be really used in the care of patients, they say is something like 17 years. I mean, that's absurd. It's a long time. Yeah. It's a long time. So I think yeah. implementation science sort of pushes that forward. It says, here is evidence-based practice. Now go forth and spread it around, take care of you know the individual patient as well as populations. And I, and I think that, and both, by the way, from a practice point of view and as well as a policy point of view. And then the last thing I think on a complete physician is somebody who is actually willing to both create and share knowledge, right? In the form of whether it's research, outstanding clinical care, teaching, medical education, any and all of it, I think is important. Maybe even turning to another care provider who might have a certain physical therapist, for example, or psychologist. Oh my goodness, yes. Wouldn't that be also part of the sharing? Absolutely, absolutely. Medicine is teamwork today. As Atul Gawande said a while ago, you know, it's no more the lone ranger or the cowboy sort of thing. It's a pit crew. And so absolutely sharing with, with anybody and everybody. And then the last thing that I personally add to the complete physician, because I think it's really critical in today's world, is somebody who is a leader from within. Because to me, a leader is not somebody with titles. Titles truly are, Linda, a dime a dozen. But a leader to me is somebody who shows up authentically in every encounter, whether it's one-on-one -on -one with a patient or a colleague or a group or students or an institution, right? Somebody who brings 
their integrity and their authenticity and sort of really lead in any situation. We can always be leaders from within. And so that to me, and I think Geisel does that, which is why I add that on to sort of the four main pillars of what I see as a complete physician. It's a wonderful answer. Thank you. It was really, really great answer. Now, what is undoctoring, which you are the director of at Geisel? Yeah. So all schools generally have a clinical skills, communication, interpersonal skills course, basically teaching the art of doctrine. While I'm talking about evidence-based and I'm talking about the science and foundational science, which is critical, the second piece is that being a good clinician, being somebody who truly brings in the authentic self, listens to the patient understands things like shared decision-making. You know, we, we, we don't make decisions for patients anymore. We partner with them, trying to get them to really understand what the, the evidence base uh, by sharing appropriately and appropriate words, not scaring them, but also not just saying, oh, do this. And so our course at Dartmouth is called On Doctrine. It's been in existence for a long time. I've had the absolute honor and pleasure of running and directing the course for the last 15 years. And what I really love about it is it's extremely robust. So our class of 92 students is broken up into groups of eight or 10, and they meet with two faculty for a group of eight or 10 every week for two hours. So it becomes sort of homeroom. They really get close and then they learn the skills of doctoring, starting off obviously with sort of how do you take a history, ask the different components of the history in a caring, empathic, and open way, being non-judgmental, and then learning each and every portion of the physical exam skills. But in addition to that, Geisel, the undoctoring course, has a lot of these high-level communication skills like breaking bad news. How do, how do we do that? And you know, when we say bad news, I think our mind immediately goes to cancer. But to be fair, Somebody who is newly diagnosed with high blood pressure and needs to take a pill every day of their life, that can be terribly bad news. Or somebody who is a diabetic and you need to put them on insulin, you know, that can be devastatingly bad. So how do you empathically and in a caring way share this information, partner with the patient? We do a session on intimate partner violence, you know, a huge societal issue. Um, we have had a uh, transgender medicine session for the last 10, 15 years, <laughs> long before it became a topic of national conversation. So we do a lot of those kinds of skills in undoctoring. Sounds great. Sounds wonderful. What are some of the, before we turn to the application, which I was kind of going through, but before we turn to that, what are some of the benefits? And you and I were talking before I started the interview about the beauty of, of Hanover, New Hampshire, where Geisel is, is located. What are some of the benefits and challenges of studying medicine in a rural setting like Dartmouth and Hanover? I love that question. And because one of the things that I'm very, very insistent on is that we don't recruit people who really don't want to be here or who, who feel strongly that they wouldn't flourish here. Because as the Dean of Admissions, to me, it's not so much about admissions. It's really about retention and flourishing. We want our students to come here. Med medical school is hard. I'm not going to pretend it's all roses. No. <laughs> but we want somebody who wants to be here. And sometimes, clearly, I love it. I've been here for 28 years. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, a rural place like this is not comfortable for everybody. I personally think it's absolutely gorgeous. People come here for vacation. I feel like I don't need to go anywhere. 
I love the four seasons. Um, some people who have not experienced winter might feel it's hard, but I think once you get wrap your mind around it and you understand sort of the concept of layered clothing, which I didn't when I first came here, <laughs> I had to, you know, it had to grow on me. Um, I think our students really learn to stretch themselves and try things that never would have before, like skiing or, you know, ice skating. And I think that sort of stretch and growth is really important for us to become sort of well-run. I mean, we tell our patients to exercise and go outdoors and commune with nature. I mean, here, it just allows us to do that. that it's in your backyard. Cool. Yes, it's in our backyard. I think it's close enough to cities like Boston and New York. So for instance, we have a Dartmouth coach that in two hours and uh, 15 minutes or two and a half hours, you can be in Boston. In five hours, you, you no know, driving, you can study in the coach. <laughs> and in five hours, you'll be in New York City. So I think we're close enough. But I do want to say that I, I don't want students or candidates to think they have to like the outdoors to come here. No, Dartmouth College. So we have, we have this absolutely wonderful Hood Museum. We have, you know, the arts that comes here, musicians that come here from all over the world. So we do have other things. You don't have to be an outdoorsy person. And lastly, I'll just say one thing because I think it's actually <laughs> critically important. I always tell students, sometimes it's really important we don't realize how regional medicine, the practice of medicine is. And I do say for people in the Midwest or across the country, it's almost important sometimes to come to a different course to learn medicine and then go back to where you, you know, live or where home is for your residency or your final practice. Uh, people are often surprised. I and mean, that's what the Dartmouth Atlas showed how regional variations in really? here. Oh my goodness, it's fascinating. I, I'd love for you to Google it and look after um, right, uh, our conversations. I, think I, will. Yeah. I hope And I hope our candidates who are listening to this do that. And I think it's a peaceful place to say. Four years, I tell my students, four years, you can kind of no distractions. And this is another reason, I'll be honest, I think they form such a tight-knit community. Yeah, our right. students say, like every class thinks that they are the best class. It's somewhat hilarious to me, right? And I have to promise everyone, yes, yours is the best. <laughs> I tell the next class. But I'm glad that they feel that way. Of course. I'm glad. And I think part of it is this bonding. There's not a whole lot of other distractions. So they really get to know each other well. You know, they have house parties all the time. Those that don't, some run or bike together, but others cook with each other and, you know, really get tight. Anyway, clearly I love this place. And I could wax lyrical off. I, I also visited, I mentioned I visited Dartmouth many years ago, and I remember talking with, at that point, it was the admissions officer of Tuck that I was speaking with. And she said that nobody locks their doors. Now, I don't know if that's still true. This was about it's 20 true. years ago. It's true. It's still true. Doors or cars. We we don't. Okay. I, I don't have a front door key. I'm on it. I'm being honest. Really? Really? Yes. Wow. Okay. So that's. I'm sorry. I have it somewhere. I don't hear. know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's turn to the application. Does Geisel screen before sending out secondaries, and are you planning to make any changes to your secondary application this year? No change to the secondary application this year. Okay. The only screen, and this is on our website, mm -hmm. is that when we looked at years and years of data, we realized that we had. 
never really admitted or very, very few, I can count on the uh, fingers of one hand, somebody with an MCAT score of less than 503. Right. We have, we believe, a really rigorous curriculum. And we thought it was fair to put that on our website so that everybody can see that. Mm-hmm. And that we did not, because as you know, most secondary applications cost. And we did not want to take money under false pretenses. But other than that, once you clear that bar, 503, there is no screen. We don't screen forever. We really do a holistic review. So you tell people that you don't admit people below 503? It's on our website. We're, I think, probably the only school that does it. I can't say that because I haven't looked at 157 school websites. But I'm pretty confident that most people don't use a screening, but don't really put it as transparently. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's true. There are a few, I think I've seen that say that, you know, we haven't admitted somebody less than this or that we do screen based on MCAT and some do say it, but it's, it's pretty unusual. It's fewer than, than don't say it. That's for sure. One of the interesting aspects of Geisel's secondary is that three of the four required questions have no word limit. That is very unusual uh, on secondary applications. Have you ever gotten the great American novel in response to your questions and, or have you found that that policy burns you or do you find that it's a good way to assess judgment among your applicants? All of the above. We've All never the, had a problem. Okay. We've never, nobody has written a novel yet. Okay. Maybe um, the memoirs? The memoirs. For- <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, um, uh, it's, it's interesting. I know we didn't have a word limit, but it never struck me as something until you just mentioned it because that has never uh, never been an issue. Yeah. All right, good. I sometimes think it's a, it's a great. Some some schools, most schools have a word limit. Uh, some schools don't, and I actually think that it's a case where um, applicants really have the opportunity to show judgment when they don't have a word limit. And that is a both true good and bad. Meaning. Yes, yeah. <laughs> both good yeah. and bad. Yeah. What do you hope to glean from the secondary that you don't get from the primary? A secondary. Uh, uh, it's a couple of things, right? We want to know what they're doing that year. Lots of people take gap years or are planning things, or especially during COVID, there was a lot of, we're going to do this, but we realized a lot of people didn't follow through. So I think that just allows them to tell us what are they doing in the moment? I think the other secondary, we just give them an opportunity to tell them anything that they feel strongly about that they haven't had a chance to mention in the rest of the application. So that is also, again, an interesting to see thing to see yeah. what uh, folks write in there. I think one that is a really important one is giving us an example of when they felt like the other. Right. And I, I think that's a really important one, right? It, it, and we have gotten some really interesting responses on that. It's interesting to see the things that resonate or that sit with folks that they want to share with us. So I particularly love that one. Um, we of all, everybody on our committee has found that particular essay very, very um, important because we do, we at Geisel, and most schools do, so I'm not going to say it's just Geisel, we do value diversity in all its forms. Mm-hmm. And we 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 know that sometimes people feel othered in so many different ways. 
Um, sure. So that's a question we really like. And then the last question is about tell us you know, why particularly guys. It's it's always nice to hear some nuggets that you might. Sometimes it's clear that folks are simply reading the website. But to me, that's good. Reading the website. That's a good is, start. It's a perfectly good start. I'm all Maybe they'll start that. quoting this interview. There you go. Uh, people have <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but I, I think looking at our website or uh, being interested enough in a particular subject that they've found faculty who are doing things or uh, something on our website in terms of a uh, service learning project that really intrigues them. Um, I think lots comes out in that that I think we find valuable. Okay, great. Thank you. How do you think AI will affect medical education? That's question number one. Question number two, which is closely related. Are you concerned about the impact of chat GPT on the essay component of the application process? I'll answer that one first. Okay. I'm not worried at all. Okay, great. So even before chat GPT, Linda, let us not pretend that there have not been cases of others writing the essay. How is that different, whether it's a artificial intelligence or your parent or a hired company? So I'm not so worried about this. You know, what, what I think, and I'll give, I'll give our listeners a tip here, a big tip. Okay. Your portfolio, your file has to have synchrony. Your personal statement can't be so different from the rest. Or from the emails you send. Or from the emails you send. Or frankly, when you do arrive for your interview. So I'm not worried about chat GPT. I think that is that is a little bit of hand-wringing in my opinion. I'm not laying awake at night thinking about my candidate are using chat GPT to write their essay. I think AI is already here. Yeah. It's here in medicine. It's in healthcare. We use it. We, you know, and, and what I think is fascinating. So at, at Dartmouth, we have an uh, incredible associate professor, Dr. Saeed Hassanpour, who actually is an expert in AI. And, and we are working together with some students. He is doing a lot of incredible work separate, but we are actually looking at how do we train our students in the big concepts of artificial intelligence, because it's here already. Yeah, um, And yeah, I think everybody needs to know its limitations, its possibilities. And then a few of our students possibly will, be, will do that. Number four, I talked about sort of create and share new knowledge. They might be leaders in AI. And so they need to know a little bit more in depth about coding and things like that. But the use of big data in medicine, it's here. It's here. Right. If you it's talk about it, obviously TV. data is the foundation of science. It's a foundation of science, and we've been collecting so much data over the last decade and a half, two decades. And so now the the key is how do you mine that effectively in order to you know improve healthcare? Yeah, I think Dartmouth will be on the cutting edge in that. Is my is my you know opinion? Yeah. Okay, great. Now, I noticed that Geisel does not require a situational judgment test, which seems to be increasingly popular at medical schools. May I ask, why is that? I would say a couple of reasons. Right. Unlike a lot of schools, we still have two 30-minute interviews. 
I think there's enough and ample opportunity to get a sense of somebody's situational judgment during those two 30-minute interviews, more than a standardized test that's delivered to me as a result. That's a good answer. Succinct and to the point. (laughs) What is it? You know, that doesn't mean I, you know, I think for schools that are using it, and we have talked to a lot of schools. So to be fair, we looked at those. Sure. We just didn't think right now we needed to change anything in our process since from our perspective, it's working well. We get great students. Right. Okay. Sounds good. Now you mentioned interviews a a minute ago. Will interviews be in-person or virtual this cycle? And what can interviewees expect if lucky enough to be invited to interview? Interviews are going to be virtual. So when the world shut down, and we had to pivot. We had two interview days left that were fully organized. So there was about 50 candidates that we had invited. And we felt that in no way could we disappoint them. In no way could we just say, sorry, that's it. So we literally turned on a dime within a week and set up two um, virtual interviews. But what we always we also did, <laughs> this is the Dartmouth way, we're all about studying things and doing continuous quality improvement. So we studied those two days and we studied it from many perspectives. We studied it from the satisfaction, whether uh, the faculty or the, not faculty, because we also have staff interviewers, whether the interviewers were able to connect with the candidates, whether the candidates felt they were heard, seen, and listened to. We also studied whether you know, there was any difference in the rate of admission for those two groups offered admission compared to the rest of the year. Right. And we found there was no difference. And we found that the candidates actually were quite comfortable with virtual interviews. Candidates are younger. They are used to things like FaceTime and uh, all of this stuff. Our interviewers that for those two interview days, just were worried that they had not connected. But the candidates didn't notice that. The candidates, when we surveyed the candidates, they said, we felt they connected well. So it was just a worry because they had done the rest of them in in person. So they were worried about that. And then that we spent that summer looking at the results and then training our faculty and sort of doing it. And we've been virtual ever since. And let's be fair. When you think about the cost to these candidates in terms of money, time, travel, the carbon footprint, you name it, I can't see going back. I can't see going back. All right. Yeah. We encourage applicants to to visit at some point in time just to get a sense of of Dartmouth. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Especially, you know, if they're offered admission, we have open houses for Mm -hmm. sure that they can come way before the second look day. That is correct. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, what makes for a great interview? Now, and what is the interview day like? I mean, is there a chance to meet with students virtually? Is there obviously, you said two one-on-one interviews. What can they expect and what makes a a great interview? Sure. I just spent the first half telling you how wonderful our students are. Truly they are, right? So if you if you ask young people today, you ask our candidates, people who really connect with and recruit 
candidates is our students. So we have the candidates meet with our students before the interview in a process we call Geisel Conversations. So our interview days are on Thursday. The candidates get invited to meet with uh, our students. These are student volunteers. There is no coaching. As I told you, we never want to recruit people under false pretenses. And these are, we are, and nobody in the admissions team is present for these interviews. These are not monitored. It's simply the current students with the uh, candidates. And we try very hard to have a preclinical student and a clinical student so that they can ask any range of questions. So they meet with the candidate, the candidates meet with our students on Tuesday. And then they come to our interview on Thursday. Our interview starts at 10 o'clock to allow for the three-hour difference so that the people on the West Coast, you, for instance, wouldn't would, would, would be early. Be able to get up seven, at a reasonable hour. <laughs> yes, 7 o'clock. <laughs> exactly. We have a lovely informational um, session. So we uh, at Geisel, we have an incredible admissions team. Uh, my admissions team is small but mighty. And our candidates absolutely love the team because they are so personable, so welcoming, so warm. So they are met by our admissions team and myself in the morning. I do a little bit of a welcome. I talk to them about, you know, important things. Uh, medicine needs to be a kind of gentle place. It simply has to change. And so when I talk to them, I talk to them about about stuff like that, that, you know, it's a small community and they might see each other at other interviews. And so really kind of trying to get to know each other and making this a really fun-filled day, I think, is what we go for. So our director, Aileen Panitz, and our assistant director, Alicia Ken, do a little informational session. Um, we use a short PowerPoint, but they just talk through what is Geisel other than what you've seen on the website, tell candidates a little bit of what they can expect about the curriculum, what you can expect about the sort of extracurricular activities and things. They then have uh, informational sessions with financial aid because we feel like that is an important component of going to medical school and that people uh, want to know more about that. They meet with our diversity, inclusion, and community engagement team because they run a lot of our extracurricular and scholars programs. And so we want them to, uh, the candidates to hear more about that. Um, and then they have a little bit of a break and they they do a little exercise called a group exercise, but I won't go into that very much because I okay. think it's, it, it truly ruins it. It ruins okay. it. It's, it's Is that to assess fun, teamwork skills? It, it just, yeah, I mean, it just, it's about them being them, seriously, mm -hmm. okay. being your authentic self, bringing your authentic self, which I talked to them about in the beginning. And then we do our two half an hour interviews uh, and we end close with sort of a closing session where I try to answer any questions that have not been answered yet and, you know, just wish them well. It's a long season. A heart goes out to them. Yeah, it's um, a long process. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, great. That's our day. What is a common mistake that you see applicants make in approaching the primary or the secondary application? I'm kind of going back a little bit here, but. I don't know that I would say that I've seen mistakes, so to speak. Okay. But I would say the thing I would offer is when talking about their most memorable experiences, in addition to a little bit of a description to really 
basically we want to know how did that experience change them? How did they, how did that make them think differently, see something differently? That gives me a little bit of a window into who they are, right? The description of the event itself is less important, I think. Personal statement, again, some people repeat a lot of of, of their experiences. And I would say, you know, try to keep every section telling us something different, more about you. The more we know about you, uh, the more we'll get to like you or more we want to meet you. So try to not be repetitive in a lot of those. I don't see any major pitfalls or errors in, in I, I, I think, um, yeah. I, I think you actually listed some some really big ones. If you're repeating what your activity section and the personal statement, it's a wasted opportunity. Indeed. Um, yes. And obviously yes. if something is a highly significant influential event, what did change as a result of it? I mean, if it had influence, what was the influence? So I think those are, are fantastic tips, actually. The last thing I'll say is, yeah, again, this authenticity thing, right? Be, be you. Everybody else is taken. So just be you. Yeah, um, that's don't, right. Don't, don't augment the stories. Don't make them grander than they need to be. Just say it like it is. Right, right. Now, your website says that Geisel received approximately 7,000 applications for, as you said at the beginning of the class, 92 spots, and that's your biggest class ever. How do you winnow it down from 7,000 to 92, especially from completed application, in other words, from the secondary to the interview? With difficulty, great okay. difficulty. <laughs> yeah, it's a good answer. No, it, it's really tough. So I, I do want to say this. I want candidates to hear this. As somebody who's been in medicine for 38 years and wakes up every morning pinching myself, being so amazed that I get this opportunity to take care of patients and to teach in the way I do, I am thrilled that still incredible humans, our candidates, want to do medicine, right? It's not anymore the kind of thing, the way people used to think about it, that you could make a good salary, you do. But there are many other jobs now that have better salaries. You know, the prestige. Yeah, I don't know about that anymore. Again, it's not the whole cowboy thing. It's some of the pit crew. So maybe, maybe slightly less prestigious, who knows. But I think our candidates want to do this. And that makes me delighted that they're still interested in the field of medicine, the profession of medicine. Because honestly, I think there's going to be a huge doctor shortage. And I'm talking of good doctors who want to do those core four things that I talked about, who really want to invest the time and effort into this art, because it is an art form. Right. Well, there definitely is. I, I happen to have some elderly relatives, and there definitely is a doctor shortage. And you have an aging population, it's going to get worse. Yes. Um, Yes. But, um, all right. Well, thank you very much for, for that answer. Now, last year I saw that Geisel stopped interviewing on March 14th. When does Geisel typically stop sending out interview invitations? Because there's this thing out there, which I've been fighting desperately, that if you don't have an interview invitation by Thanksgiving, you're toast. And oh every God. single every single admissions director I've ever spoken with says that's absolute nonsense. It so is when nonsense. Do you, when do you stop sending out invitations? So we, our process is a rolling process, rolling admissions. So okay. we continue to send out invitations. Well into March? Yes. Early March? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good yes. to know. 
And and similarly, you know, with the wait list, that's another thing that people worry about. This is a long process, which is why I said I feel sorry for our candidates. It's a long year. It's a long year. Oh, yeah. How, how do you feel about updates from candidates, either, you know, invited to interview, waitlisted? Do you not want them? Or do you say, if you have something relevant to say, I want to know about it? Absolutely. If okay. you have some something relevant to say, absolutely. Okay. We, right. we, we do not discourage them at all to send in updates. All right. How do you view prerequisites taken at a community college? We are okay with those. Okay. Right. We are okay with those. As and long as they meet our requirements, it's okay. And and here's why. I, I want to be very clear about this. You know, I think of all that we know today in our world, uh, of the issues of structural determinants of health and structural inequities, lots of people, especially California, if I'm if I'm mis- so my really? son, our son went to University of California. And so I do know that a lot of people in California, they actually go to community college and then go transfer in their third year um, and graduate. So I think that's okay. All right. And do you view shadowing as a a must-have, as a nice-to-have? And how would you compare in-person shadowing with virtual shadowing? I think shadowing or clinical experiences, I'm going to call them broadly, Mm -hmm. more broadly, are critical. I'd like to, may I interrupt? I'm sorry. Shadowing is when you accompany a doctor and you watch a doctor. Clinical experiences could be when you're actually doing something. You know, you're volunteering, you're an EMT, you're prescribing. I completely agree with the way you've categorized them, but we think about all of those as clinical. Got it. Okay. Definitely. If you're in EMT, definitely a a nurse, a a medical assistant, or anything, pharmacy, you're doing a lot of healthcare anyway. So that's a lot of clinical work, but you may not have that opportunity if you're a full-time college student, shadowing is all you can do. So we we think about it under the umbrella of clinic. Okay. Getting clinical experience. That that is critical. Oh, it is absolutely critical. And during COVID, we completely understood the inability to, sh- to shadow or do clinical work in person. But I do think now that that hopefully time has passed permanently, but maybe not we hope. for the moment, I do think that's important. Virtual shadowing was a really incredible and innovative way of doing things. And I think it's useful as an adjunct, for instance, if you wanted a, if somebody has a kind of clinic that that intrigues you and you don't have anything locally and you're doing that in addition, but that can be, cannot be your only right. clinical experience. Would the same be true of, of even in-person shadowing? Would that be okay as your only clinical experience? Yes, I think that's really? okay. Yeah. So in in person shadowing, and I'm assuming this is backed up with other service things that are. Right. Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about the current senior, in right. you know taking a full course load. How much more can they do than that? Right. Right. If if you're taking a gap year, that's totally different. If you're you know doing something else, yeah. But if you're going to a full-time school, you don't there's only time. so much time in the day. The last time I checked. <laughs> 168 and, and hours in a week. Thinking about that, that's the one thing I didn't call out that, you know, I want people to be authentic. 
and honest on their hours and how they calculate it. Because I do look at some of those hours. Somebody says they have like 5,000 hours here and then 5,000 hours there. That is not enough time, especially if they're going to school. So that doesn't make, that doesn't jive. Right. The math doesn't work. The math does not work. Right. Okay. Good point. This is a listener question that I got a few months ago and I, and I like it. So I've asked it several times. If now you were once a pre-med student, if you were a pre-med student today, traditional or otherwise planning to apply in 2024, this cycle or 2025, the following cycle, I realize it's 2023, but for matriculation in 2024, 2025, what is the one thing you would be doing to prepare yourself for medical school? What would you tell your younger self to do? Most people cover this, but I want them to really think about why they want to do medicine. That was relevant in my day. That's relevant today. Right. Why do you really want to do this? Because everybody knows medical school is hard. And everybody knows you come out with a lot of loans. And everybody knows that it's not an easy path. And so it has to be something you're willing to work towards. And if it's not your authentic need, but perhaps a parent pushing you to go, or perhaps this idealistic thing, I'm good in science, so maybe this is a path for me. I want to help people. I want a little more than that. Because there's a lot of healthcare professions you can go into. I can tell you when a client gives me that answer, I want to help people. I said, you know, in my my uh, sink is stopped up. My plumber helps me too. Yes. So why do you right. want to help people in this particular way? Right. So I want them to really deeply think about why medicine rather than, and, and in a way, I think this is even more relevant today because the path seems accelerated. Everything is quicker, quicker. We have them do a million things. We have yeah. them check a million boxes and they're running around checking those boxes being good. Do you advise a gap year? If needed, yes. So if somebody says to me, like there are a lot of, there are some people who believe that you should want to be a doctor from the moment you're born and that means something. I don't. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people that are great doctors who've been out who've actually been working in other fields and they just felt this deep call. They give up whatever they were doing, sometimes went back, did a post back, did some lots of service along the way and had this recognition about this is what I wanted to love that. So, yeah, if it takes a gap year to, to, to have that reckoning, then go ahead and do it. What would you have liked me to ask you? I don't know if you might have asked me, but I really want to, to say something. One is, again, I'm grateful that people are interested in this profession. I think in medicine today, I want people coming in, understanding it's going to be hard, but that they don't have to know everything. They don't have to be perfect. That nobody, at the volume of knowledge that is churning out every day, there's nobody who knows everything. So it's perfectly okay to not know. That's why you're coming to medical school. I want people not to constantly compare themselves to each other, feeling like imposters, which is very big in a lot of professions, definitely medicine, because I feel that, that these things hinder learning. 
you know, and I, th- there's, there's a very important thing in medicine that you have to be internally motivated to want to do this and do it well. Right. And, and skill takes a long time. The other thing I think we are so, everything is, we wanted yesterday, right? But this is science and art and it takes years. Even when they graduate from medical school, they're not going to be great physicians. That takes a lifetime. Don't get sick in July, right? Right. (laughs) And so I I wanted to say that we think Geisel will get people there. Um, Not only the foundational sciences are very strong. I think for decades, we have been really excellent uh, in our clinical care. I mean, if you think about the first x-ray was uh, at Dartmouth, clinical x-ray. I didn't know that. The first ICU in the country was at Dartmouth. I already talked about the Dartmouth Atlas. I think a lot of people know that the the mRNA COVID vaccine um, went quicker to market because that happened with the scientists at Dartmouth. Um, And so I I think there's, we could help people get to be that incredible complete physician if they want to be that, but they need to look inside deeply first. It's a great way to end the interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Pinto Powell. I think we're almost out of time. I want to thank you again so much for joining me and sharing your expertise and enthusiasm and authenticity. This has been just delightful. We're linking to the URL for Dartmouth Geisel. Where can listeners learn more about Dartmouth School of Medicine? It is uh, geiselmed.dartmouth. Sounds good. Yeah. We're going to include links in the show notes, except.com slash 530 to Dartmouth Geisel, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Thank you listeners also for joining me. And a quick reminder, don't miss the med school admissions quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the free quiz at accepted.com slash medquiz today. This is Admissions Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <music>